When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No credentials. Reviewing Rolling Stone 500. Greatest album. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Sound Logic Podcast. Today we are talking about album number 47 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. And this is A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. Uh, as we do from time to time here on the Sound Logic podcast, we bring on a friend to help us through the music. We reached out to our friend Jeff Moore, who um, Mike and I spent a number of our high school years with. Um, Jeff is a friend and fellow corn picker and uh, also an accomplished drummer. And when we asked him about uh, if there's any albums coming up here on the uh, Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest albums that he might be want. Uh, might want to be on for as a guest he he mentioned this album that we're talking about tonight coltrane's a love supreme um jeff uh was the drummer in the band grand pm and you might remember all the way back from our review of uh the clash's london calling in which we had uh dustin wood the bass player of grand pm on as our special guest um aside from that jeff's uh just been a really wonderful stand-up guy in in my life and um even though uh we don't live anywhere close to each other anymore i appreciate that friendship and that connection um jeff aside from being a drummer i know there are lots of other things going on in your life and and have gone on in your life over the last several years since we've lived apart. How do you introduce yourself um, to people these days when someone asks who you are? Um, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, it's fun being involved in this, and I've listened to a few episodes, and it's uh, it's kind of a cool podcast you guys have going. So thanks very much for thanks for including me. You're very welcome. Ask me something else. I don't know. I like I'm a musician. <laughs> I'm a Christian. Uh, uh, father of four. Um, you know, love playing hockey and lots of fun winter stuff. Um, I'm a firefighter. I guess I guess those are the things I would say. Jeff, do you still play some music? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I play regularly at um, the church I attend in Huntsville, uh, Huntsville, Ontario. It's uh, Harvest, the Harvest Church in uh, Huntsville. Okay, yeah. Well, a good starting point when we do dive in is to ask if, if this is something that we're familiar with. Um, I think it's safe to say that neither of us grew up with parents playing John Coltrane's A Love Supreme for us. But I'm curious to hear from either of you where your first sort of introduction to this music might be. I want to go first because I, like you, Ben, I don't have much to say. I, I do enjoy jazz. I have some jazz albums, and I've listened to a lot of jazz radio over the last 
15 years and become familiar with a lot of the big names and the uh, different standards that they've written. However, this is one that I'm not familiar with, and I've never done a deep dive on Coltrane. I have, um, I have Blue Train. Is that an album? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have. Yep. I can remember this. I, I, have Blue, I have Blue Train, um, and I have some other jazz, uh, really important jazz albums, Miles Davis, some other things. Uh, but a Love Supreme is not one that I have listened to, and even when I listened through it in preparation for this uh, episode I thought that maybe some of it would be familiar oh yeah I've heard that on the radio station I hadn't none of it was familiar and it's one I don't think they play as often so this is brand new to me Uh, but Jeff I'm very interested to hear from you if you can tell us if you remember when you first heard uh, John Coltrane for the first time and if you remember when you first heard this album in its entirety for the first time yeah, um, so I went to Humber College in Toronto. Um, I was there for four years doing a, uh, what was it called? Jazz performance or commercial music performance uh, course. Okay. And so we did a lot of, um, obviously kind of went through a lot of the jazz catalog and uh, classic albums from all the different decades and um the progression of the music from like early ragtime to you know modern day um, crazy complicated um, modern jazz mm-hmm. so this this would have been an album that I, I heard probably sometime in I don't know 2005 2006 um, it would have there would have been a couple reasons um, harmonically and just I mean I'm a drummer so I'm gonna make myself sound dumb here but there's just uh, something about Coltrane's playing that um, was just so virtuosic and uh, and new like they, they talk about him playing like sheets of sound where he's just just blasting just endless notes and endless improvised yeah. breezes and um, oh it, it would have been of interest from that end and and Honestly, um, Alvin Jones playing drums was, was a big draw for me as well. Um, we studied a lot of jazz drummers, and he's, if not the most influential, he would be like a top five um, influential drummer um, in the oh, jazz wow. scene. Um, to the point where, um, you know, even influences that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like um, John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, um, you know, you, oh, cool! You, if you listen closely to Alvin Jones's phrasing and the way he uses triplets and and different things, you can actually hear where Bonham got some of his inspiration for you know the famous Moby Dick solos and all that kind of stuff. But um, even even just his his playing has a looseness and uh, um, yeah, has just has this flow that Alvin Jones had as well. So one of the things I'm ignorant about in this world is jazz. Um, I know that I knew that the makeup of, uh, of ensembles changes over time. Was he a, a drummer that kind of stuck beside John Coltrane throughout their careers, or uh, is it just this album where you you hear him playing with Coltrane? Um, are you asking me or are you asking Mike? Uh, whoever can I'll answer, go. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's jazz. 
he, I think he played with Coltrane for five or six years, um, right around like 1960 to 65 when this was released. I think they parted ways shortly after this album. Um, uh, you guys may have heard my um, favorite things or my favorite things recording. Yep. Or, um, yeah, that's another classic Coltrane recording and Elvin Jones plays on that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, I can really hear the similarities. Yeah. Um, Just sort of. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. (laughs) I was talking to Emily about, um, about doing this episode and I I told her that (laughs) it's, it's really odd music in a sense, because, um, you know, if you want to have some strange looks, um, just drive downtown with this playing with your windows down. Like it's just, it's just like to the, to the average year, it's just like wailing and crashing and banging. It's just, yeah, it's, it's chaos. Like you look like a lunatic <laughs> pretty much. But <laughs> uh, That reminds me of a couple of things. I went for a jog the night before we did uh, public enemies <laughs> with it blasting just from my iPhone and people oh, yeah. giving me all kinds of funny looks but tonight I drove a couple of students to an event that we were having and had this on in the car just kind of as preparation getting ready and um, we all admitted that we don't really have much jazz wisdom but but there was a, a sort of quick reaction of uh, the students to say like that's something that gets played in uh, the supermarket or elevators or like his background music in our lives but this is different like they were acknowledging too that that while there's something familiar sounding in this Coltrane album uh, it is not that sort of uh, music that gets just sort of pumped into to spaces with lots of people um, yeah. it's too disruptive I think what you're getting at Jeff is like it's not it's unsettling in a way that, yeah. that the sort of soothing jazz that gets played in other places is not yeah, the the amazing thing, you know, if you study jazz, if you listen to it a bit more, is um, there's this this tension and release relationship, and uh, and the great great players know how to to build these really tense moments, and then and then they can release it, and then you know it just it's a, it's a roller coaster up and down, um, and so that that doesn't work well in elevators. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, <laughs> good, good one. So yeah, it's music that you kind of either you're listening to it or you're. It's not really background music. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, and when I when I think about music that I like and and even jazz music, I, I wouldn't put this album on regularly anymore. Um, but it's influenced modern jazz records that I do listen to. Uh, still mm. regularly today um, so yeah it's uh, it, it, in a weird way it still sounds kind of uh, relevant um, because you can hear the influence that, that modern day uh, artists are still pulling from this kind of re- recording well similarly to when we had uh, Jason Crane on I think what this album he was on for uh, Miles Davis's um, kind of blue and I think uh, nice. Yeah, I ended up, I ended up with more questions than like emotional responses, and I think I'm feeling like I'm in a similar kind of space tonight. So I'm looking forward to this conversation 
not necessarily to share my own opinions, but because I'm looking forward to a chance to talk through it with the two of you to sort of expand my awareness of what I'm listening to. Um, so this should be fun. Nice. Um, do you want to dive into some details now, Mike? I'm ready. Details, 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 details. Love Supreme was released January 1965. This was John Coltrane's 18th studio album. And interesting to note, this was his third record label. So as we discussed with Miles Davis, um, some of these performers, they're releasing some of their best albums, but they've been at the game for a decade or more and recording constantly and mm. when we say this is his 18th studio album it, it would have been his by title john coltrane 18 but he would have been performing on many 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 others i imagine these guys just in the studio you know almost every day um and if they weren't doing their own stuff they were recording for other guys of course we know john coltrane recorded with miles davis most notably and other bands as well so um this was his own 18th uh, studio album. Did you guys realize that he's on the Kind of Blue album as well? I don't yes. know. I didn't hear that episode. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. John, of, of, and that's a good point, Jeff. Uh, another one of the, you know, I think many people would say the greatest jazz recording of all time, Kind of Blue, John Coltrane uh, joining that band as well with um, uh Cannibal Adderley and yep. uh, Bill Evans and Jimmy Cobb and Miles right. Davis. Yeah. How do you like that? Bill all from memory, there, Jeffy. That was nice. <laughs> I couldn't have done that. And uh, pretty uh, unique for this list too to have uh, artists on each other's albums. I mean, we get into some of that when you know the Beatles spin off yeah. their own solo project. There's not a lot of crossover, especially early in in this list. Right. Yeah, a little bit with the folk guys, um, uh, the band, and Bob Dylan, and then and then when we got into that, like uh, Joni Mitchell and Carol King, and I know we haven't done any James Taylor, but they're all kind of in that early first few years of the '70s, yeah. playing on the same stuff. But no, this is kind of and jazz is like that. Like you get that kind of group of these are the top players right now, and they all play together. So in the late '50s, early '60s, all those big guys were all playing together. And the um, the style of music kind of lends itself to that as well, just because it is improvised. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're rehearsing in a in a pop band or a rock band, like it, it takes a lot more um, preparation. Like, um, whereas jazz is kind of composed on the spot, uh, right? With, with loose with a loose framework, but. Um, yeah, so it, it lends itself to kind of guys jumping all over the place and subbing in here and mm. jumping into that band. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah just make, making a phone call like, hey, can you come over next Saturday to the studio? We're doing an album. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you can't do that with, you know, uh, rumors. Like, we're doing rumors, you know, tomorrow. Can you come by? <laughs> like, it's, the, the, you know, you those, those, some of those albums... Yeah, yeah, like exactly. we, th- those albums that took, you know, like Rumors and uh, Dark Side of the Moon and uh, Springsteen's uh, Born to Run, like that took anywhere from eight to 14 months right. to, <laughs> to do. That, whereas yeah. this is like, this is one day. Um, uh, yeah, Kind of Blue was, was, again, was one day 
uh, they only did one complete take for each. They did some additional parts, but they didn't do more than one complete take for each of those tracks on Kind of Blue. Um, yeah. So that, that's like, that, that just still blows my mind. And we think about these rock guys, you know, pouring over it month after month and going and recording and doing all sorts of different stuff. This is just like, nailed it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's kind of like <laughs> a, it's kind of like a sound logic podcast, really. Yep, exactly one and done. Right. <laughs> in, and, <laughs> in and out. We just come in one one track. Perfect. <laughs> Edit, editing is super easy. Like I basically just you know publish the thing the way it's recorded. Hardly have to touch it. <laughs> I, you guys are just say, that good. Uh, this this probably is going to show some ignorance, but I will say that a piece of the freeform nature of jazz. Um, does sound like a jam session at times and, and i think that is a struggle for me to get over the improvisational style doesn't always come out exactly perfect like rumors or hotel california or some of these like overproduced things um i i know that there's a way to look at that and see that as still um perfect even despite it's <laughs> rough around the edges um composure yeah. But, but I think as a as a person who's not really fully immersed in the jazz world, I I do at moments think like, you know, th like uh, the third track on this album has a long extended drum solo and a long bass solo, uh, drum solo at the beginning, long bass solo at the end. Um, yeah. You know, like that could be a guy in his room, just jamming. You know, a guy we all knew in college who was really good on the drums, uh, or yeah. on the bass, just kind of hanging out. Um, to me, that doesn't necessarily speak to something that's been crafted in the same way as just a really talented musician going to town on their instrument. Um, but but maybe right. I can save all, all that tangent for later on as we as we review the music. Yeah, we haven't even got through we haven't <laughs> even got through details yet. <laughs> it's more uh, but, but that's a good. Yeah, exactly, right? Is Any other problems with the album, Ben, that we need to talk about before? <laughs> I'll buy my time for now. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's just let's just slog through these boring details, Ben, and then we'll get to it, okay? Um, yeah, so we, we talked about it recorded uh, on one session, uh, December 9th, 1964. Um, and, and then, you know, po that means post-production was also very short because uh, they released it in 65. So that's... Uh, very efficient. Uh, this album was certified gold in the U.S., the U.K., and Italy, and by 1970, uh, so five years later, had sold more than half a million copies, which far surpassed any of Coltrane's normal record sales, which usually around 30,000. Uh, so this wow. is you know times times 25 ish. So uh, you know very very successful for John Coltrane and very successful for a jazz album um, and I think that's one thing that puts this album up on top above other albums uh, Love Supreme is categorized as a few different things we've talked about them a little bit uh, modal jazz avant-garde jazz free jazz uh, Ben you mentioned free form uh, so that's free jazz uh, hard bop and post bop um, a lot of different things happening and I hear those different things through the songs maybe not all at once um, 
it is John Coltrane's best-selling albums. Uh, it is one of John Coltrane's best-selling albums, his most critically acclaimed. Um, it is considered his masterpiece and also is considered one of the greatest albums ever. And certainly in the jazz world, it's one of the best jazz albums uh, considered by most, most critics. Um, as we get in, we'll get into this in tracks, but Love Supreme is uh, four tracks. Um, and basically it's a suite in four parts. Uh, we'll get into that and we'll, we'll name them later. Um, and it's also, and this is an interesting point, also widely recognized as a work of uh, deep spirituality and is analyzed with religious subtext. And we will talk about that a little bit later uh, on the, the fourth track, which is um, Psalm. Part four is uh, Psalm. And he wrote a psalm to go along with it. Uh, ben, I don't want to jump the gun there, but... Um, we can talk about that a bit later. Uh, I want to talk about the players real quick, cause especially with jazz, not as much with some of the other um, genres, but with jazz, you know, usually when you have a major uh, well-known musician, they have crafted kind of other very well-known musicians. So John Coltrane, um, he's the band leader, uh, tenor sax, soprano sax, vocals as well. He's got Jimmy Garrison on bass, Elvin Jones, you mentioned Jeff on uh, drums and other yeah. percussive instruments, and uh, a name I was not as familiar with, McCoy Tyner on piano. I think he joined John Coltrane on a number of albums. Uh, his playing sounded very familiar to me, uh, but I don't know the name as well. And again, I, we don't do a ton of research here, but uh, <laughs> similar, a, a similar, well, you know, we don't, you can't know everything, but. Um, <laughs> But I would say that to my to my ear, it sounded familiar. Uh, and I, Jeff, I don't know if you're as familiar with that piano player, um, uh, or if so you're more familiar. Hear, yeah, a little bit. Like when I hear McCoy Tyner, I think of um, Wayne Shorter. Um, he played okay. a lot with him, and I believe oh, okay. um, Tyner was a bit more in like kind of got involved in the free jazz. Um, I might be wrong about that, but um, he was definitely like really pushed the limits on harmony and uh, his his accompanying style is like you said it's it has a certain sound that you would be able to pick up. Um, yeah, it's kind of sparse and, and, it, and it kind of yeah. Well, you mentioned Wayne Shorter, and that and that makes sense because the person I was thinking of when I heard his piano playing was Herbie Hancock and of course Wayne Shorter oh, yeah. almost yeah. always accompanying uh, Herbie Hancock um, yeah. on his albums and performances so I can hear that kind of uh, a lot of dissonance a lot of those same chords that, that Hancock would use and the yeah. modern guy that it reminded me of who is making you know very progressive jazz now is Robert Glasper and I heard a lot of kind of similarities there uh when I when I listen to this album, kind of could hear where Glasper would have taken some of that stuff too. So, anyways, oh, cool. those are the players. Do you listen to any Robert Glasper there, Jeff? No, I, I've actually never heard of him, to be honest. Oh, check it out. He he does um, yeah, he does some good stuff. He does a great one called Afro Blue with um, I think Erica Badu is a really good track. So yeah, check yeah, really really cool modern stuff. Okay, Ben, how about the album cover? Huh. Sometimes we've got a lot to talk about when we get to an album cover. Just, just, uh, 
trying to give something that you that like is more accessible to you. I know the the music is a little <laughs> is new to you and a little more foreign, but you know you you're you're an you're an artsy guy. You can get into the art. So uh, give him sure. some pictures uh, to look at. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look at some pictures. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> some flashcards while we talk about the real stuff. Um, um, and we're going to yeah. talk about jazz. So here's a few pictures to look at. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is an interesting one. It's not one that uh man. Okay, so so specifically, it is a black and white picture of Mr. Coltrane. Uh the title of Love Supreme and his name are up at the top in a fairly standard block white font. And um he's just kind of got a serious look on his face. He's got a collared shirt and suit coat on it's kind of hard to tell where exactly he is but that's about it um unlike marvin Gaye's, what's going on where you can see sort of like real black confidence and power um this this image looks a little bit more troubled like he's kind of gazing off in the future or uh, concerned about something um it doesn't look posed like uh we may have seen on robert johnson's album cover or uh, Chuck Berry or something like that. It it looks like a, a more candid, casual yeah, snapshot of someone. But um, but yeah, it's very serious too. And uh, uh, you know, we we've had a few moments where the album cover just like screams the music on it, and we've had some moments that just feel really disjointed. Uh, uh, one that comes to mind is. Uh, the Van Morrison album um, just didn't feel like <laughs> it connected very much with the music that was on it. I don't know what to do with this one. Um, for an album that holds itself up with such musical brilliance and a spiritual side, um, maybe it is appropriate that, that he's got this serious look on his face. Um, I don't know. How did the two of you take this in? Well, two points I want to make. One, uh, I imagine this shot, although you can't see much of the background, imagine it being in the studio. And I imagine mm -hmm. him just, you know, studying someone else playing or listening to someone intently. Like, to me, this is a an expression mm -hmm. of, of intense thought and focus. Um, and it doesn't have that same kind of, kind of power and confidence as some of the other uh, ones that you've referenced, Ben. But... Um, uh, to me, this does match the music, and I, I, as I find this music, although it is free-formed, I find it very intellectual, and uh, that's what this picture expresses as well. And it is very candid; it's very, it's a casual shot, but um, but I like what they've captured here very much. Is kind of blue, where it's just it's him playing; it's not even really in focus, um, uh, and it's just it's just the artist doing what they do this is him just studying or being engaged and hey they could be sitting down you know having dinner i don't know <laughs> but um i imagine that it's uh, in the studio the second point really interesting a love supreme john coltrane at the top it's the writing is on an angle and i'm not sure if that's supposed to match there's some sort of uh window frame or picture frame in the background and maybe it's supposed to match that line which is on an angle or maybe his gaze was on an angle but i find it's an interesting choice that they wouldn't have just put it um totally horizontal but it, it's kind of cutting a corner there which is bizarre um 
but maybe that maybe it is matching some of those other lines in the picture. Those are the two things that that I took from it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add. That's a good call. Just uh, referring to the kind of blue album, it definitely kind of has the same a similar feel, just the seriousness and kind of understated artwork and. Um, and it may just, I'm not sure if this was put out by the same record company, but they may have just sort of had a look and they just wanted their albums to look, uh, you know, kind of this understated, serious kind of way. I, I don't really know, but um, it wouldn't have really fit to have a really flashy, crazy cover, I don't think, on no. this album anyway. No, that's so. true. No, no. No, this was released by Impulse, and I'm pretty sure Kind of Blue was Blue Note. Okay. Um, yeah. No, sorry, Columbia. Columbia. Um, right. <laughs> but they're probably all owned by one evil conglomerate. So. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so normally I list the tracks and then we play a little snippet, but because of the nature of this album, we're not going to do that at this point. We're just going to let it play through so you can listen to it. And then uh, on your own time, if you want to go back and identify that, you're welcome to do that. But we just want to have this play through in the background of our conversation. So that's what we're going to do. And this is probably going to be one of my favorite ones um, to list because it's not going to take as long. <laughs> um, <laughs> as we said, it's, it's a suite in four parts. So if you've got the LP, side one is part one, Acknowledgement, and part two, Resolution. And side two is, um, it's actually kind of listed as one track. When I listened to it on Spotify today, they had it broken into two tracks, but it is part three, Pursuance, and part four, Psalm. And um, the Psalm is one that, although he doesn't recite the lyrics, it is one that he wrote, right? Is that correct, Ben? He, uh, John Coltrane wrote a Psalm. He wrote a psalm, and he uses the saxophone to say the words. So as you read, you can... Oh, okay. The psalm was included in the liner notes, and you can read the um, the tempo of his playing matches up with the syllables of the words of this uh, psalm that he wrote. So you could Excellent. replace the saxophone with spoken words and sing it um, exactly the same way, and it would fit. It's really... Uh, it's quite um, moving to, to have the lyrics in front of you as you listen to that final track, um, because you can you can hear emotion um, as the as the song's notes change. You can feel intentional, I guess, feeling or mood built in with with what he's saying, and you almost need to have sort of two uh, sensory experiences at the same time to really fully get the picture. I think of what he was imagining. Um, it is a, a you know, uh, I'm a bit of a, a, a theology nerd, I guess, having gone to seminary. But the psalms can be psalms of of joy or praise, uh, or sometimes lament. This is a really a psalm of uh, of praise. He is uh, he is appreciating God, and and it's been interesting. I think people throughout the years since this has been released have. Um, wrestled with what it means for a more avant-garde kind of um, music composition to be layered with something that is just so clearly on the nose specific to be uh, a, 
uplifting a very Christian understanding of God. Um, and some people sort of theorize that uh, the lyrics are not as plain as they read on the page when you put the music behind them. It becomes more nuanced and uh, and possibly a little bit more gray than than the psalm is if you just read it off the paper. But but all of that creates a, a, a real interesting mystique around this final um, part of the suite that uh, when I discovered that this week, it just like totally transformed even how I heard the rest of the album, um, having those two parts together. I think, um, I think that was a later realization too. I don't know that it was obvious when the album was released that the uh, song went with the final track. Like, I don't know that, they, mm. that it was, it was discovered oh. to later that the syllables lined up with the melody and, and what he was playing. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of like a, a hidden, That's really a cool. hidden, a hidden message or a hidden, um, I don't know. As, as the kids say, an Easter egg. Yeah. An Easter egg. An Easter egg. It's, yeah. uh, the, the Psalm is labeled a love Supreme, but the track is labeled Psalm. So yeah, it, it's not exactly clear that, that, uh, those two things do go together. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure who discovered that, but it's. Um, it, I did read that it was uh, a later discovery. Did, have you guys in in the research? Did you guys notice that there's actually a Church of John Coltrane? Whoa! No. Oh. Yeah, uh, in San Francisco, they they have this psalm. I think sort of as their cornerstone of the church. And uh, wow, I believe they're I, be, I believe they're Pentecostal, which is kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, so anyways, I, I I watched a short little thing on it, and uh, yeah, they meet like a, a regular Whoa. church service, and and they use his music and his influence as kind of like the. <laughs> The cornerstone it's it's, it's pretty wow. weird um but yeah that was that was uh so for our listeners uh do yourself a favor right now pause the podcast and go to coltrainchurch.org the homepage of their website has a, a religious icon but it's not a biblical character or god or jesus it's john coltrane with a halo around him uh, his saxophone is in his hand, but it's got flames coming out of the middle of it, and it has oh, yeah. parts of this psalm in there. Um, it's iconography, but it's Coltrane. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. Oh man, this is fantastic. Because the the and that's because the African Orthodox Church uh, uh, venerated him. I think, yeah, is as, he a saint? As a, as a saint. He's a saint. Okay. Wow. Okay. Oh. I didn't I didn't know that. Whoa. Whoa. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> and their their motto is to live out a love supreme. You know, it's it's sort of this yeah. album specifically. It's not it's not yeah. just him. It's it's the message of this this album. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't get to San Francisco too often, but uh, my good friend Michael Kennel lives out there. Maybe I need to get him to send us a uh, um, Coltrane Church icon or something like that. For uh, I wish we had a home office for the Sound Logic podcast, some sort of like <laughs> vault we could put up treasures like this. <laughs> wow, I love it. 
That's why we had you on the podcast, Jeff. That piece alone is worth just, the amount of money we're that, paying eh? you. Yeah. Well, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> um, okay. So when I first put this album on and, you know, was hit right away by, you know, cymbals and saxophone and, and the sound right away as the music kind of, settled down and took form the first thing that jumped out to me was the sound of the drums and as i was preparing and knowing that we were going to speak with you jeff and knowing that you're a drummer um i wanted to pay attention to that throughout the album because okay if jeff likes this and he's a drummer i would imagine there's an aspect of the the drumming that he really enjoys so i wanted to ask you about you you know feel free to comment on any aspect of the of the music that you enjoy but specifically is there something about the drumming that really speaks to you that sets it apart for you or is it just kind of you just like the whole thing as a whole in general um honestly as a drummer um i can't help but have my ear go towards the instrument that i play um, right i would assume yeah so it um, although I, I love Coltrane's playing and I mean all, all the players are amazing it definitely was mm-hmm. um, what sparked my interest was Elvin Jones who's you know a, a big name in and of himself um, yeah I mean the thing he, he's known for a lot of different things um, a lot of guys hated playing with him um, he was too all over the place oh, wow. he was too busy he was too, <laughs> too sloppy uh, I heard it said that uh, he would either play with three and a half beats in a bar or four and a half beats in a bar. Like he was always kind of like pushing <laughs> and pulling the meter. He was, um, whereas somebody like, I don't know, like another famous jazz drummer, maybe like Buddy Rich would, would, would be just more of a technician and more of a like um, uh, virtuosic, but in a very precise way. Alvin Jones had virtuosity but he had way more um soul and and uh, i don't know just like rawness to his playing mm-hmm. so that that kind of hooked me in and uh he he was also known for developing the drums as um as an instrument that could develop um variations and 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 you know a theme and then a variation on the theme and similarly to how any other instrument would would improvise but um, he kind of took it to another level where he was able to have many different themes and and play for an extended period of time um, either in tempo or outside of tempo uh, where he's more just playing um, you know more a little bit more random ideas and he could also solo on a on a theme that was included in the song, like either a melody or, or a rhythm that's reoccurring in a song. So yeah, I guess that's, those are a couple things that drew me to his playing. Um, his cymbal sound is, is something that uh, he's known for as well. Um, yeah. People have, people have commented that um, you can hear the notes of an orchestra in his cymbal playing. Hmm. Um, so I think that would be more in the last track where it's a little bit more it's, it's, a, it's a slower, more introspective kind of song so you can hear the, the 
the intricacies of his of his playing and some mallet playing and cymbal swells and and things like that. So but, I mean, really he just took the drums to another level and, and like I said before, uh, his influence goes well beyond jazz drumming. He, he influenced um, you know current current day drummers, um, you know classic rock drummers. Um, you know it's uh, yeah he's a very very influential player. A uh, couple couple notes here on Elvin Jones. Uh, Life magazine once called him the world's greatest rhythmic drummer, and his style had direct influence on a number of drummers. A uh, couple I'll mention here: Mitch Mitchell, uh, Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix experience, and Jimi Hendrix called him "My Elvin Jones," which Great. is pretty yep. interesting. <laughs> and uh, Ginger mm-hmm. Baker of Cream, and John Densmore of uh, The Doors. So, yeah, some big names in rock. They yeah. are not necessarily in jazz. So, uh, absolutely, um, totally. Your your comments are well founded. Well, and it was true even in my playing. I'm I'm not a notable drummer by any means, but um, I feel like the jazz background and jazz study um, it impacts just how how I play even even songs at church or you know what I played when I when we used to be in Grand PM like it's um you just approach drumming and music slightly differently um I think there was another quote of Jones where he said he doesn't hit the drum he plays the drum um so he's he's Hmm. trying to get music out of out of these percussive percussive instruments not just smacking them and you know beating the snot into them he's he's there's a tone he has in mind and he's trying to get that to come out of the drums and the cymbals. That's cool. I like that. It's interesting that a drummer uh, that that isn't necessarily known for staying in his lane um, gets paired with a, a saxophone player who kind of has the same reputation and yet sort of brilliance comes out of it. Um, I think... Yeah with two really strong personalities like that, there could have been a tendency for them to like not get along or to not mesh well or to like kind of clash because they're both kind of taking their own paths. <clears throat> but some reason it, it, there, there's a synergy that ends up happening here despite those two reputations. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I think eventually eventually they did go their own way, but they seem to have five or six years where they got along really well and the and the, the synergy and um, what they were able to create together was amazing. Another interesting historic note, just as we move on, that we talk about different artists playing with each other and other artists moving on. Um, it was only two years after this recording that John Coltrane uh, passed away from uh, from cancer. So uh, this is kind of kind of near the end, although they didn't know at the time, it was near the end of his career. Uh, so everyone kind of moves on from this point uh, in terms of who they play with and what they do. Huh. Which is, I mean, it's a retrospect thing, um, but it's kind of, uh, they didn't know, but this was kind of close to a turning point in terms of where they would go. So uh, maybe that's just me. No, that's interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard that before. I mean, I'm supposing about, you know, the turning point thing, but um, 
but I always find it interesting, especially for those artists who who are gone long before their time. You know, their the career and the and the the evolution of their music is on a trajectory that never completes itself. So, you know, this is one of his greatest, and you don't. You know, we just have to suppose. You know, like a many many are. You know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, all these artists who, and many 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 others who, uh, their career wasn't winding down by any means. Right. <laughs> um, and then that trajectory just stops. So it's just interesting. And then, of course, in jazz, especially in jazz and in other genres, they are carrying other musicians with them who are joining on that trajectory. And then it totally changes because uh, they're gone. So I, I find that interesting. And jazz is such uh, when you you know when you we've talked about when you listen to jazz radio and they finish the track, they do something that no other genre does: is they list all the players. Um, you know that was that was John Coltrane's Love Supreme with you know Alvin Jones on drums, and they and they list that. You know they don't do that with <laughs> listen to a Bieber track and listen to all the guys who played on it like that. You know that doesn't happen. <laughs> Um, and I'm glad it doesn't because I would hate it. Uh, but you know, with jazz, they are so interconnected. All the players in the genre, uh, I would say, even today, uh, especially in your local, you know, when you listen to Toronto-based radio and jazz, you hear a lot of Toronto-based music, and all the players are traveling in the same circle. So I think that's something so unique. And Ben, as we think back to talking about kind of blue, I mean. We're talking about again one of the players there, and that same circle, that same movement, uh, slightly different. Yeah. Bill, the, the music has gone somewhere. You can hear um, Ben. I, I imagine you can hear, you know, sl- a slightly different uh, feel on this album. Um, even though Miles Davis had discovered something totally new when they did Kind of Blue, there's still a little more form there than there is here. There's a lot of points mm-hmm. on this album where everybody has kind of gone in their own direction and they do that for a few minutes and then they come back. There's less mm-hmm. of that on Kind of Blue and you know there might be a spot where somebody solos, but it, there's a little more structure there, at least to my ear. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Kind of Blue sounds like... Uh... Uh, I don't know. It, it sounds way more accessible than this album for sure. Yeah, um, I agree. More more melodic, I would say. Yeah, even harmonically, like um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the modal jazz thing is is pretty yeah easy to follow. Like the the changes tend to be slower, and the so there's more time to develop an idea. And um, <laughs> this uh, this album kind of are you guys uh, Office fans? The uh, Steve Carell Office. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you you have it all, Ben. I, my family has watched all of it. I kind of trailed off in the last few seasons, but let's see if I get this reference. Well, it just reminds <laughs> me of when Angela when Angela's upset and uh, she's. Uh, I think Dwight brings up jazz. You're not stupid. Jazz is stupid. <laughs> jazz is stupid. I mean, just play the right notes. <laughs> I can just like it's this it's this kind of right. this kind of jazz that gets that kind of response, you know, like it it, it yes. 
Well, can I, so this might be another question out of ignorance, but there are moments in this um, uh, album that that is held up as a saxophone virtuoso where you hear reed buzz or like uh, playing over top of a a note, as my band director may have said. Um, Some things that are are part of that free form, freestyle, um, capturing a feeling or emotion almost sound like errors or something that uh, in eighth grade band a kid gets yelled at for <laughs> for not just playing the hmm. note as you were saying um, is that an intentional is, is every I guess what I'm really asking is is every little read buzz or imperfection here um, intentional and done with a purpose or is that just part of what it means to get in a room and have a jazz session where some things might not click exactly the way that that you have in your head. There's a Miles Davis quote that goes something like, um, a wrong note is only determined by the note that's played after it. So, you know, even if in improvising... See, I listen to this, Ben, and I don't hear any... And I'll use the, the, the word in quotations. I don't hear any mistakes. Um, I hear creativity. I hear improvisation. I hear th- uh, dissonance, but I don't hear mistakes. I don't hear something that I go, that sounds like an error. Um, and I think a lot of it, too, where you can play something, and even if it was something that maybe sounds a little off, uh, it's the next note that makes that, that previous note right or wrong. And mu- musically, I mean... Uh, even though you could say, okay, if we're playing in this key, you have to play all these notes. But really, uh, especially in a freeform jazz environment, there really is no wrong note uh, because as an improviser, you can create whatever you want. Uh, so I think, you know, for someone who's new to this music or not familiar or just it's just not your thing I can see that being very challenging and it is to me at times but I don't yeah. hear I don't hear that I don't have that conflict when I listen to it personally and I think you make a really interesting comment that you know in eighth grade band you do something and because you don't have the experience and the prestige it's a mistake but if you intentionally yeah. do that as an established musician now it's now it's art now it's craft you know it's just like <laughs> you know jackson jackson pollock throws a bunch of paint on the wall and it's a masterpiece but you know if you or right. i do it it's just us mucking around um yeah. so i think it's a similar thing here with that prestige you can say well i intended to do that um, and then it's great. So yeah, I get the conflict there, but but when I listen to it, I don't hear, as Angel would say, I don't hear wrong notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess maybe my my unease with that starts to get into sort of the um, jam band fans chasing their favorite recordings. Um, you know, like we hold this up as like they did it in one session in a single day. Uh, yeah, because anything goes right like right you know, <laughs> yes the next day the next day the album would be completely different and it would still be exceptional because there are four talented exceptional musicians here um so yeah so then we're kind of like you know then do we just collect uh <laughs> 
concerts uh, like like fish fans and have 800 recordings of essentially the same thing but with different mistakes at different points um you know i guess that's all kind of like tossing and turning in my head while i'm trying to figure out what to do with this thing that doesn't fit um what my expectations are of music well um if i can go back just just one point there just about the wrong notes again and uh i like what yeah. what mike said about um it's it's only wrong if the next one uh isn't quote unquote right or it depends on what you do with the next note um a lot of the dissonance or quote unquote mistakes or whatever that that you hear it, they are intentional and it it creates this uh dissonance or tension that then often gets released mm-hmm. um and so it's just kind of a an amazing sense that these musicians have that they're able to to do that and um and yeah. one of my favorite examples um it's not really even an improvised moment i guess but it's at the end of the first track when Coltrane plays the, the four note the the love supreme motif um mm-hmm. I, was, I was reading about that and he actually plays that motif in all 12 keys um not not like not oh, chromatically wow. or, or any like uh, i'm not sure if there's a, a logic to his his um, order in the keys that he plays that motif in but he systematically goes through all 12 keys playing that motif and again it, it depends on how deep you want to get into this album but he, there's sort of hidden messages there about about um, about God and his his completeness and just uh, like it's it's a bit of a wormhole but um, it's kind of neat that there are those <laughs> those little hidden things in this in the in the genius of his playing um, and that was yeah. just an example that kind of came to mind. So uh, it's, it's pretty cool when you look into it. That's really neat. I hadn't noticed that. And it is going to sound dissonant because he's playing <laughs> he's playing those four notes in every key, and you know the the band yeah. isn't necessarily um, <laughs> uh, you know like there's going to be there's going to be a lot of dissonance depending on what the band is doing behind him. Yeah, well, I'm now going to con- contradict myself, but I think, uh, you know, your your comment about um, uh, dissonance and then resolving itself. I don't ever finish uh, this album and think like, oh, that that never came full circle. Like, I think I think there were moments uh, when we were in high school, we were jamming with our friends where we'd get to the end of something just because we ran out of steam not because anything had actually resolved Um, and it wasn't because it was like good and final and complete it was just like oh that went off the rails and and i think that's what moves something from just a jam session with no purpose to something that's really great when you can go off in these different directions and somehow bring it all back together in this in this nice little package Mm -hmm. um and all four tracks kind of do that Right, they all go in their little different tangents, but you don't finish any of them thinking like, "Oh, that's incomplete," or they've got to like, you know, you know, finish another <laughs> cycle of that. Um, it's just, it just is, and it's good. Yeah, yeah, and I guess maybe we should have t- talked about this a little bit earlier, but the typical sort of um, form that jazz, modern jazz songs take is you play the head or the melody. 
and then players take turns soloing over that melody or that quote unquote head is, is usually what it's called. And then it usually returns to that at the end of the song as well. Um, so that's, that's the typical mm. form. There's usually some kind of melody that starts a song and ends a song. And in between is kind of a free for all, just depending on who takes, who takes a turn of, uh, soloing over the chord changes. Interesting. That, that might help. Um, I can see, uh, you know, it could be yeah. confusing just yeah. coming to this music being like, what, like, okay, now they're soloing now. What happened to, uh, you know, that melody that was really nice to listen to at the beginning. Why can't they just play that again? And, um, <laughs> oftentimes they, they're referencing the melody, but in a more complicated, like roundabout way and, um, variations on the theme, I guess is sort of another way to put it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we've done is we've created a Spotify playlist for the SoundLogic podcast. And every time we review an album, we pick a couple tracks uh, to go on the playlist. Uh, we like to ask our guest to to add some tracks there. Uh, this is a unique <laughs> uh, album to tackle for this because there are only four tracks and they're all quite long. Uh, I don't know, Jeff... <laughs> if I, what do you want to do ben do you want to just put one up there or do you want to do two uh do you think one's sufficient I'm, for this what i'm do you fine think? with one or two uh i'm i'm fine with one or two i'm curious if jeff has two that stand out to him i i would definitely say the first song just because um it yeah. has that that love supreme um chant at the end and it's kind of the yep. it's it's the song i think of when i think of the album um, and it's yeah. probably the most, if there is an accessible song on the album, I would say that's probably it. Um, yeah, I'd agree. Or, yeah. It returns to that refrain over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, what if we do the, uh, the hidden, what if we do the hidden track song tricky thing as our second one? Do it. Make it time? happen. Make it so. Okay? All right. Both have been added to the playlists. They're there now for your listening pleasure. Ben, you, you posed a question here, and I don't think you asked it. Uh, the question you asked is, uh, where where do you listen to this? When do you listen to this? Do you listen to it background or when you drive? Is that Have we already covered that in your mind? Have we answered that, or, or do you want to get into that as well? I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was eye-opening, actually, for me to hear you and Jason the last time talk about uh, I think I sort of naively was like, how, how do you sing along with this? So you can't really sing along if there's no words. And you were both like, no, 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 we sing along, you know, we'll do a baseline or something like that. And, and, um, and I think this question is kind of along the same lines. Like when I listen to this, I prefer to have it just be on the stereo while I'm doing other things. I like, even with its dissonance, I like this kind of jazz to be on just as a background um, maybe not in an elevator, but, but it's fine for, for our house. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, well, I guess I am curious how, how the two of you, uh, consume music like this. It's, it's a little bit out there. Um, is it something that you have on in your earbuds? Uh, is it something that you have on in the car? Um, where, what space in your life does music like this occupy, uh, for those of us who are not really into this genre? It's, uh, it's interesting you brought up kind of blue again and, and that 
um, episode you guys did on that, I could, I could right now, I'm not going to do it, but I could, I could sing Miles Davis's solo on, um, so what, what, that was one of our, one of our <laughs> projects that we had to do when we were at schools, we had to be able to sing that, sing that trumpet solo, um, through, and, uh, <laughs> it's, it's still, still ingrained on my brain. So you totally can sing along to it. Maybe not this Coltrane album. That would be you know, probably pretty difficult, but, um, some slower stuff, a little more melodic stuff you can definitely sing along to. Yeah. And as, as far as when, when I listen to it, I, I actually, I, I still love listening to jazz. Um, like I said, I wouldn't necessarily put this album on, but, uh, a lot more modern stuff I'll put on. Um, I love listening to it when I'm cooking, uh, when I'm going out for a walk, uh, commuting. Um, it's, I, I really enjoy, um, just the, it just, for me, it, I love pop music. I love, I, I really like any kind of music, to be honest. Um, but this kind of um, music just, it hits a different part of my brain and it, it just takes me to a different place for some reason. So um, I really, when I'm in the mood for it, I, I really enjoy listening to it. Hmm. I think that I, I like that and I would empathize, Jeff, when I'm in the mood. It is something I think I need to be in a specific mood to listen to it. And as much as it can be nice to listen to as background music, I would rather it to be more intentional for me because uh, this music for, requires something more of me because it is kind of complicated at points and also very freeform at other points. So uh, I like to wind down to this kind of music. I can close my eyes and just kind of let my mind wander and, and kind of let the music paint pictures in my mind for me. Uh, or I can focus on just kind of the sonic structure and let the music kind of simulate the part of my brain that enjoys the intellectual side of these compositions um, and kind of focus on breaking it down a bit. Uh, but still uh, for me, that's relaxing. Uh, some might say, well, that sounds so stressful and complicated and hard work. It, it's not, it's kind of just how I, it's how my brain kind of functions. So I think that's it for me. I, I would find it been very hard to listen to this in a social setting um, because I find jazz often is really distracting to, to people, uh, to most people. And it's kind of like, what's that? What are you listening to? You know, or, or kind of like <laughs> they just can't get into it. And it's, unless you're with, you know, other jazz uh, musicians or fans who are able to just let it just be, um, I find a lot of other people yeah. have a hard time doing that. So it just, because it just becomes a distraction. So it's not something I yeah. usually listen to yeah. with other people. It's, it's usually on my own. So um, that's me. But I, I thought that was a, a really good question. And especially, you know, as it's been really fun to go through this with you, Ben, as you have said many times, you know, this is not a music you grew up with or even listen to much at all or, or, or find, you know, a clear access point for you, but you're trying, you know, to understand it and understand why we love it, uh, which, which I really appreciate. And you're asking uh, great questions and it's allowing me also to dive into it more, uh, and, explore why i like it so i appreciate that thank you well thanks for that for those answers I, I think that's helpful 
One thing, I don't know if, if we need any more content, but one thing we really didn't talk about is just uh, Coltrane's constant battle with drugs, like uh, heroin and alcohol and just the on again, off again. Uh, he would, you know, he would beat it for a couple of years and then he'd be back and he'd, you know. We do talk about that because a lot of times, and it's, it's a troubling part of the music, but so much of the music we've discussed so far in this project and on this list, uh, that's a big part of how it was created, the culture in which it was created. It's a big part of it. And I think to ignore that that inspired and helped create some of the music we listen to would, would be false. Um, I don't think we can do that. It, it's difficult and it's troubling at times and it's sad at times, but it's a reality. Um, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be able to say whether that directly influenced this album, Um I think he was clean on this album, and that was part of the song okay. that he was. He was so thankful that he had he'd oh, okay. over, he'd overcome oh, uh, that addiction. Right. Um, but I believe he he got back into drugs later on as well. So there was a it was a constant battle throughout his life uh, with right. addiction, hmm. which is really common. Like you said, I mean, doesn't matter if it's jazz yes. or you know whatever whatever genre we're oh, talking yeah. about. It's it's, it's super common. Yeah, com and, and you know the era. Well, well, I mean, it's not like it's ever gone away. Uh, yeah, the you know maybe a little more, a lot, a little more vocal people were, and the stories kind of circulated, and uh, maybe at times it was more public. Um, for anyways, I don't, I don't want to get on down that track too much, but uh, yeah, that, that's and it is sad how much you know. Just like you said, Jeff, we'll be talking about something, and someone will say. Oh yeah, did anybody mention that you know this person had a major drug addiction? It's, it's kind of just seems yeah. to pop up a lot, yeah. uh, which which is sad. Um, um, you know that people were were kind of a slave to that. Uh, on the other hand, like we talked about, you know, <laughs> uh, Fleetwood Mac, like they'd hold these crazy parties and eat and you know drink and do whatever drugs they get their hands on. And then when it was at its pinnacle, yeah, two, 3 AM, they go into the studio <laughs> and record Blast one of the greatest, yeah. one of the greatest albums ever, you know? So it's like, there's an aspect of it that has, uh, birthed all this great music, which is, you know, a bit of a, a bit of an issue. Yeah. It's conflicting for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is, yeah. That's a good. It's conflicting, you know. Um, it's like, can you can you just dismiss something because you don't agree with where it came from, mm -hmm. um, right? But uh, uh, for, our, for our whatever, whatever yes, this, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You can't listen to that because this person believes in this thing, um, or yeah. this person did this thing. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's great music, and, and I don't do that thing. doesn't matter. You know, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. what we were brought up in. Uh, okay, yeah. Our next question. Um, and Jeff, you already answered this. Uh, you said this music is still very relevant, um, and that's one of the questions we ask. You know, a lot of these albums are very old. Uh, is the music still relevant? Did it stand the test of time? And you said yes. Um, oh, uh, Again, we... We don't need to rehash it too much, but would you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah, I, I would I would say you know not many people will sit down and listen to a jazz record anymore, but um, the influence that music like this has had on uh, hip hop, um, just modern mm. modern music that is extremely popular, like there's a an unquestionable influence that has been um, it's changed, but um, the roots are, are back in in these jazz records. Um, uh, a lot of the samples still that they get used are from, right. from jazz recordings um, and, you know, harmonies. And obviously the rhythm is, you know, that sort of swung, um, that swung feel is still very popular in, in hip hop. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, this album uh, I'll say is relevant, um, but mostly because of its influence on modern music. Not, not that you necessarily, um, sit down and listen to it every day, I guess. In terms of influence and yeah. just the foundation of jazz and music in general, this is, you know, absolutely pivotal and almost as a, if you're going to study it, like you have to, this is something that has to be in part of your, your study, your education of it. Um, you know, jazz hasn't been, popular music in itself for a long time it was pop music at one point but it hasn't been for a long time so i think that makes it a little more difficult to be relevant uh but on the other sense you know anybody making anything that sounds a little bit like jazz today is has been influenced by this we talked about a lot of the rock and roll specifically drummers that have been influenced by uh alvin jones and this music and also another thing we've talked about, and Jason Crane, you know, kind of got us on this, and I, I keep saying this too, you know, when you have instruments that are used in the same way in very similar forms and styles, like a tenor saxophone in 65 is pretty similar to a tenor saxophone today. Uh, so when you have the instruments used in the same way, in almost the same form, you know, that, that makes it more accessible too. So I think I would say yes and no. Um, but for jazz, absolutely. Yes. hundred percent essential. Yeah. I think where, where I struggle a little bit is with the rest of this list. Like I feel like some of these albums are on here just so that they can say it's more than just classic rock. Um, uh, you know, if they really were taking jazz seriously, there should be more of it. And if they're not, there shouldn't be any of it. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know, maybe that, Maybe that's uh, too much of a literalist or too much of a legalist. Um, and I find myself doing the same thing. Like I can listen to this and hear that it is great and hear that it is meaningful and important and historic and relevant. Um, but it, you know, if, if we play the Sesame street game, like one of these things is not like the others. It just doesn't fit with anything else that we have tackled so far aside from maybe its influence on a few other things. Um, so I don't know. This question for me is a challenge. Uh, it's definitely, uh, like you both have mentioned, extremely relevant for anyone who wants to get into jazz music. Um, and extremely relevant if you play any of the instruments featured here. Um, but I think it strikes out on a couple of ways. It, it strikes out from the sort of, uh, 
you know, cultural relevance today. I don't think that if you, you know, the, the test that we've often mentioned is, you know, if you put this on on the street or in the club today, would people like be like, oh, I love this stuff. Uh, my my hunch, maybe it's because I work mostly with young adults, is that most people would say, "What is this?" Um, hmm. So it's got it. It's maybe a bit obscure, and it um, while it's brilliant, I think it takes more of a musical background and awareness to really get into it and appreciate it for what it is. Um, man, now that I say that, it's making me think that I just recently said that about something else, and I can't remember what it was. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> sometimes sometimes an album is on this list and i think boy it takes kind of a music nerd to really appreciate this uh in a way that that you know a, a more pop sounding album does um so i i don't think this is as relevant maybe as uh as some of these others for me but i can hear the argument that you both are making and 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 resonate with it and, and i i could be persuaded to come over to your side. <laughs> um, we'll work on that. Yeah. We'll work on that. Yeah. <laughs> it kind um, of feeds into the next part, right? Like, yeah, another round. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good segue. And I want to start with you, Ben. You know, you said that it, it doesn't fit with the other albums around it. So is this position at number 47 to sound logic for you? I'm guessing I know the answer. I don't think it is. I, I, I hmm, boy, I, I think this list should be more diverse if we are really going to take seriously other genres. Um, yeah, for sure. But to, but to me, Rolling Stone, the magazine is really about popular rock and roll music, popular and rock and roll music. And, and this is not that. And so I, I guess I find myself, feeling like it just doesn't fit what what the list was trying to do here um if it is really like no holds barred greatest albums of all time which maybe it should have been um then absolutely this should be here and some other stuff should be here too from other more obscure genres that that um are not given radio play in the same way that the other things are. So, you know, we should, we've, we've already mentioned a couple of times, there should be more country music on this list. If it really is the greatest yeah. uh, music of all time, um, there should be way more female artists. There should be, <laughs> you know, fill yeah. in the blank. Yeah. Uh, uh, there should be way more jazz uh, in, in all of its different subgenres. If this really is about the greatest albums of all time, uh, it, I guess the more I, I exist in this world of the Rolling Stone list. I think, you know, that's not really what this list is about. And so I don't see this as, as a, a position that sound logic for me. And I'm not even sure that it's the right space for it. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to have to give it some more thought maybe too. Um, <laughs> but, but for now, I, I guess I'm going to say no, not really. And not that I would bump it way down bump it way up i i just don't think this is the right space <laughs> you know what I'm, I'm gonna actually kind of join your side a little bit on this one if you can believe that i see this as a very important album uh 47th greatest ever uh, against everything else i'm not so sure uh one of the greatest jazz albums yes absolutely um and the mm -hmm. challenge i have is is again the accessibility thing uh, a lot of people 
especially today, aren't really into jazz. And we can see the influence, but as a great album in itself, um, we there's there's a lot of other really popular, successful, catchy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, albums coming up. Um, it's a, it, and that is a challenge. I struggle with it. At, at the same token, Ben, uh, there should be a place for jazz on this list, and there should be mm-hmm. a place to acknowledge the influence of it, um, even if people aren't necessarily voting for it as their favorite. And maybe that's where this list is good that it puts an album like this that maybe a lot of people wouldn't vote it, but it gets it in there gang saying, no, no, this, this influenced a lot of people and still does. So it needs to be acknowledged. So, yeah. yeah, So that, that's a challenge. Jeff, what do you think? And and this question can be challenging because, you know, you, you have to kind of know what's on the list and where we're at, but uh, you know, 47, uh, what are your thoughts? Um, It does. On one hand, it does kind of feel like a token, uh, like, it, you know, they're just throwing a few token jazz uh, albums in. I don't right. know if it's just to kind yeah. of try and be cool or if it's, you know, because, uh, yeah, I, I'm not really sure. Um, I agree. It, it doesn't make everybody happy. Yeah, it doesn't really fit. <laughs> um, I, I totally I totally get that it doesn't really fit with the rest of the albums. Um, and it's how like how how you um how you rate an album's greatness too like i i don't even know i'm sure you guys have talked about this at at end but um you know the my idea of what a great jazz album is versus what a great pop album is like they're two completely different things so um yeah, yeah they're two yeah. polar opposite genres and um just trying to force it into a number like 47 it does seem pretty arbitrary and pretty uh, much a token um token selection so um i'm okay with you guys saying no to the 47 greatest ever i'm (laughs) it just i I, yeah i'm not going to argue against you um it is getting late so uh that's that's part of it. I mean, war of attrition. You guys win. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that does make me pause a little, we've got albums like um, the Velvet Underground and Nico that mm-hmm. I think are mostly on here because of their influence. What's the quote? Like the, the album that nobody bought, but launched a thousand bands, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. And I, yeah. you know, hearing you talk Jeff about the way that just the drummer alone has influenced rock music in general, you know, like maybe there is this sort of, maybe we need to create a separate list of like the most influential albums of all time, in which case this should be there and should be quite high on that list. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that helps her or not. Yeah, I agree. Let's with start that. a new podcast. No, and I, I think that really highlights the, the conflict here and the conflict that we've talked about on this, this list. It's very subjective. There's a lot of different uh, components of, compiling it and it's you know we've been pretty tough on the people who made the list but as we've said especially as we've gotten further along this is really hard mm. <laughs> it's like yeah. must 
part of it must have just sucked trying to put it together and having people scream at you. Oh, what about this? What with that there? You know. So yeah. Um, yeah. Um, just uh, you know, closing off here, uh, we like to talk about if there's going to be any other albums from this artist. And John Coltrane has one more. His number 103, Giant Steps. Uh, from 1960. So that's the only other John Coltrane album. So, uh, uh, you know, Jeff, I, I know we're, uh, it's getting a little late, but would you join us again? Um, you know, 55 <laughs> albums from now to talk about Absolutely. John Coltrane again. We'll take Love us another to. couple of years to get there. <laughs> yeah. I'll start yeah. preparing. Yep. Oh. Yeah. So <laughs> give it a listen. Yeah. No, I, I have listened to that album. <laughs> It's been a joy, Jeff. And if there's anything else that comes up in, in the meantime, <laughs> if there's anything else that comes up in the meantime, let us know if there's uh, something else that doesn't even have to be jazz, but something that uh, really uh, was has been special to you. Let us know. We're always looking for uh, uh, knowledgeable voices like yours, especially people that we love and appreciate to come on the podcast and, and share this space with us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was fun. Thanks, Jeff. It was great, great to talk Absolutely. to you. Absolutely, anytime. Yeah. Uh, what do we got coming up next time, Mike? Well, we got coming up next on the Sound Logic podcast. We've got album number forty-eight, which is a totally different direction. Uh, although maybe influenced, it's Public Enemies. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Yeah. Speaking of albums that are just on there as a cliche or <laughs> not <no>. oh boy <laughs> uh, but uh yeah totally cut, jumping cut. genres and decades <laughs> um but i want to take one more moment to to thank uh, jeff moore for joining us thank you so much um yeah for sharing you. your thoughts and your passion about this we want to thank you listeners for joining us and we'll talk to you next time no, we need a better sign-off. <laughs> Maybe a catchphrase at the end. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.